All right. Today we are uh, in Genesis chapter 28. Kind of in the middle of the chapter there. We're going to pick it up at verse 10 and uh, may get down to the end of the chapter. We'll see how far we get today. But um, last week, we <coughs> excuse me, we were looking at... Uh, uh, the end of chapter 27, beginning in about verse 41, and look down through, uh, we uh, talked about things down through uh, verse 9 of chapter 28, uh, and it was all about uh, uh, <clears throat> the need, uh, about, uh, excuse me, about Esau's uh, grudge, and then about the need for, Eth- for Jacob to flee and, and uh, to go find a wife and that sort of thing. So, just looking down through those verses from 27.41 down through 28.9, what do you recall that we talked about last week? Rebecca told him to leave, but it's almost like he had to get permission before he could leave because he was then sent by his father. Okay. He already put in... Was it not, was it not common for him to just go... It's a different culture. In a patriarchal society, you didn't just kind of take off on your own without dad's, without the patriarch's approval. So yeah, he he definitely had to have have his dad's approval before he could just take off. So yeah, but that is a good observation. In our day, you know, kids just when they want to go, they go. <laughs> but uh, it was a different day back then. So. Probably a better day in that respect. <laughs> so. I wonder if there's a little manipulation. And I know we talked about the importance of the promise of marrying the godly mm-hmm. line, but you almost see, okay, Jacob, I'm telling you to leave. Now his dad needs to bless his leaving, so I'm going to complain about the wives, so dad will see the point and dad will send him on his way. I just wonder if that was a. Uh, I think so. I, yeah, I think it's. Yeah, I, th- I, I mean, her her complaint is legitimate. Her desire is legitimate. But yeah, why didn't she Why didn't she do this six months ago, or a year ago, or ten years ago? Yeah, she she uses she uses it now as a uh, as a malip- manipulative tool. I think you're. Yeah, I think you're right on that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and it is interesting, of course, that eventually he does forgive. Yeah, yeah, he does. I assume he doesn't forget. Yeah, he forgives him, Uh, but even that, I think, is the product of a miraculous move on the part of God, as we'll see as the story goes forward. And there's a little bit of allusion to that today in, in the passage we're going to look at today. But, uh, and, and that is one, one way in which, uh, in which Rebecca seriously underestimates the pain that's been inflicted on, on Esau is by her just tendency to kind of dismiss it and say, oh, he'll get over it. You know? <laughs> and in reality, he'd been hurt quite deeply and, and it's going to take a long time, if ever. And so, what else? <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. 
last week, and guess what? I was listening to I guess the Hank Hagerman on Channel 800, and there's some guy called in and says, well, why didn't you get reviewed by Isaac? <laughs> why didn't I, uh, you know, why didn't you get reviewed? I'm thinking, well, that's a good place. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just wondering if, uh, if uh, Isaac was a little, uh, he realized he was in the wrong dude for what he favored Esau. It may have been. It may have been. I, I I, I would assume that as time passes, all parties involved uh, kind of wonder about how they handle things. I think as we look at the passage today, I think it, it may be clear that even early on here, Jacob begins to have some second thoughts. Uh, it's not explicitly clear, but I wonder as I read the passage if they don't begin to have some second thoughts about things. So, yeah. What else? Yeah, yeah. Everybody kind of thought Dad was going to die pretty quick. Uh, obviously, Rebecca did, and Esau did. I assume Jacob did, and I don't know what his condition was. But uh, so he, yeah, he's planning to he's planning to kill his brother as soon as Dad's dead. So uh, it's going to be a you know, from Rebecca's point of view, it's a pretty sorry looking future that she's facing at this point. The prospect of losing. Uh, losing uh, one son to murder and the other son uh, by retribution, uh, of course, uh, and losing her father all at once. I mean, her husband all at once. It's uh, you know a bleak future that she <laughs> she sees. It's no wonder she kicked into high gear to try and salvage the situation at this point. Would the birthright reverted had there been an accident? I, I, I would assume so. Yeah, I would assume so. I, I don't know, but yeah. Uh, but if it was clear, of course, that he had murdered him, then it wouldn't. I, I don't know where it would have gone then, but, uh, you know, clearly under the law that was instituted after the flood, uh, Esau would have had to have been, uh, been uh, uh, executed for, his, for murdering his brother if it became clear that he had. So, but. <coughs> Anything else? <coughs> Okay, well, let's pick up the story then in, in uh, chapter 28 and verse 10. And, uh, and Esau, uh, excuse me, Jacob uh, actually does, in fact, then obey his parents and leave and head off to, uh, to pay Naram or Haran, as it's called in different places. And it says in verse 10, Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth and its top reaching to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out from the west to the east and from the north to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave until you have done. Excuse me, until you have. Excuse me, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar, and he poured oil on his top. He called the name of that place Bethel, or the house of God. However, previously, the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that you give me I will surely give to you a tenth. Okay. Uh, I mentioned last week just uh, in passing, I want to go back and, and kind of develop this a little bit more. It's, it really is striking when you think of when you contrast uh, Isaac, or Jacob here leaving to go get a wife uh, with uh, the quest that we read about in chapter 24 for a wife for, uh, for Isaac. What are some of the differences that you see between securing a wife for Isaac and Jacob going off to secure a wife? Okay, one of the first obvious things is he doesn't have this whole entourage. When, when Abraham sends his servant off to get a, get a wife for Isaac, he sends off this, his servant with all these camels and he's got all these servants with him and he's got a, obviously a great deal of wealth that he's carrying with him. He's just, he's, he's just going off with all this stuff to go get a wife. What do we have when Jacob goes? It's just him. How much money does he have? He doesn't have a lot. And there are a couple indications of that. One is, and we haven't got to this part of the story yet. One is, when he does finally get to Haran and he wants to marry Rachel, what does he have to do? He has to work for seven years, okay? He doesn't have a bride price. Now remember, we've already talked about how much more wealthy Isaac is than Abraham. Okay? So Isaac is this exceedingly wealthy man... But when Jacob gets to Haran, he has nothing with which to buy a bride. Okay, and he has to work seven years. He thinks for Rachel. It turns out for Leah, and then he has to work another seven years for for Rachel. So he works fourteen years for two wives. Okay, and uh, so that's one indication that he's not carrying a lot of money in his billfold. What's the other indication that's in our passage today? Okay, uh, here he is. He's apparently near the city of Luz, but he doesn't go in for accommodations in Luz. Okay, and there may be two reasons for that. One may be that he just simply doesn't have the resources to be able to feel he doesn't have the resources to be able to afford lodging. The other is the city may he may have considered the city too dangerous of a place to go to. Okay, and we'll talk about that maybe in a little bit. But. But at any rate, he, he doesn't secure lodging. He's just sleeping out on the ground. Okay. What else? And you notice what he specifically asks for when he makes his vow to God. Food and clothes. Food and clothes. 
Okay, so here he is. He's going on a journey that he doesn't really expect is going to be all that long. His mother said a few days. I think he probably has a hunch by this time it's going to be a little bit longer than that. But he's beginning to worry about the provision of food and clothes. Okay, so this really sets this whole situation really in stark contrast to uh, uh, to the uh, the effort to get a wife for Isaac, doesn't he? He's going off all alone. He's going off. Uh, without uh, many resources, he's not he's not going with an entourage and all that sort of thing. So uh, and what is perhaps the most obvious difference? He's okay. Okay. He sends his son now. Uh, that's kind of puzzling because you think now Abraham, when he sent the servant, the servant said, well, what if I don't what if I can't find her? or what if what if the woman won't come back with me? And what does Abraham say to his servant? Don't take Isaac back. Do not take Isaac back to her. OK, whatever you do. I will release you from your vow. He can be a bachelor the rest of his life. Just don't take him back to Haran. Okay. In contrast to this, we have Isaac sending Jacob back to Haran. Why do you think? What's going on there? But. Isaac doesn't know that. Isaac, uh, I mean, there's no indication that Rebecca told Isaac, you've got to get him out of here because his brother's going to kill him. You know, she gives this other reason for going. <clears throat> well, he may, yeah. Okay, okay. You know, it really doesn't tell us why. But one of the things I'm thinking that I was thinking about as I was thinking through this yesterday, I was thinking, Abraham's been to Herod. That's where he came from. And he knows what's there. And he knows the people that are there. And he says, don't take Isaac back there. For that reason, Isaac has never been to Herod. He doesn't really know the people. And he doesn't know what lies in here. And it's just interesting to me that what we find out, of course, as the story goes forward, and as we study more of the story, we're going to find that Jacob goes to Haran, and what happens? He's deceived and cheated and ends up stuck in Haran. And I have a hunch that maybe that's what Abraham knew that Isaac didn't know. That Abraham had some sense of the peril that Haran presented to Isaac ever making it back to Canaan. And that's why he said, don't send Isaac. But Isaac, of course, doesn't know that. And he's got his wife, you know, looking over his shoulder saying, send him, send him, send him. And, of course, she has other motives. Her motive is to get him out of there to protect him from his brother. And, of course, uh, so she's motivating him to go. And so uh, with it for, some, for whatever reason, and that may be the reason or maybe some of the reasons you all have suggested, I don't know for sure. But he sends Jacob off by himself. And so Jacob leaves. Now, we do know that this place where Jacob chooses to sleep this particular night is at least two. It's probably a three day journey from Beersheba. 
So Jacob has been on the road for two or three days. Okay. And if you if you can just kind of try to put yourself in Jacob's sandals at this point, you know, what what is going through your mind? What are the what is your frame of mind now as you uh, as you have left home and you are going, as I think Mike just said a few minutes ago, as a fugitive. He is a fugitive. He's of course, he is going to get a bride. But his primary reason for going, as we said, is to get away from his brother who wants to kill him. So here he is. He's fleeing home as a fugitive. Put yourself in his sandals. Here he is alone on the road two or three days. What are the kind of things you're thinking about at this point? Pardon? Yeah. Yeah, he's probably worried about, you know, he's probably putting it pretty good <laughs> for fear Esau's behind him. It's not safe traveling in those parts of the world in, that, in those days. Probably isn't today. <laughs> traveling alone, you know. And can you imagine the thoughts that start crossing his mind about an hour out of Beersheba? He's known nothing his whole life except this clan that he has grown up with and grown up in. This is home. This is family. This is everything. And as we've seen, he's a little bit of a mama's boy. Here he is an hour out of Beersheba. What's he thinking? It's kind of puzzling well, I'm glad you brought that up because I've been racking my brain about that all week, you know, thinking, why would Isaac do this? You know, and I can't come up. I mean, he's already blessed him. And and uh, he blessed him once, and he blesses again right before he sends him off. And I think probably you're right; it is the providence of God. Yeah, it's a it, well. I mean, obviously he he obviously had provision to make it. I mean, I don't think they sent him off without anything. Uh, I'm sure he had provision for the journey, but. He's looking at a future that's very uncertain. And, of course, he realizes he doesn't have all this wealth that he thought was available to him because he had secured both the birthright and the blessing. And he goes off without any of that stuff. So what are you thinking an hour out of Beersheba? Yeah, I, you know, I can't. I, I don't know this for sure. But but I just kind of think at this point he may be having some second thoughts. Now, I don't think he's repented. <laughs> you know, I think that is yet to come. But I'm sure he's going, I don't know if I'll ever see that place again. And he'd always been kind of dependent on Mama, and Mama wasn't going to be around anymore. And he's going, I don't know if I'll ever make it back here. And I don't even know if I'm going to live through this trip. God 
Yeah, it, it seems like that's what God's doing, doesn't he? He just, he just strips him down to just the bare essentials and sends him out on this perilous journey. And he's walking along and he's thinking, what have I done? You know, with all my grabbing and all my, you know, all my plotting and all my scheming, where has it gotten me? Here I am. I'm, I'm walking away from home. I don't know if I'll ever see mom again. I don't know if I'll ever see dad again. I don't know if I'll ever be at peace with Esau again. You know, these are the kinds of things I think that the passage itself indicates to us that that Isaac, or excuse me, that Jacob may have been wrestling with as he's walking away, as he's as he's uh, as he's walking away from Beersheba and walking towards here. And he and he spends about two or three days, as we say, I would say, in that frame of mind. Before he comes to this place. Now, it's really interesting what the narrator does for us here in the story because he keeps talking about the place or that place. Okay. In fact, he uses the phrase the place or that place about six times in ten verses to refer to this place where, Abraham, where Jacob spends the night. And uh, in fact, in your in your translation, it may say there in verse uh, 11, he came to a certain place. OK, it's just kind of a convenient translation. Really, the way, the way it's worded there in the Hebrew is he came to the place. OK, so it says he came to the place and spent the night there because the sun had set and he took one of the stones of the place and he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And there's all this emphasis on this place, but he doesn't tell us where this place is. He's kind of building our suspense. So it's like what he's it's like what he's trying to communicate to us is is he's out here in nowhere. This is nowheresville, okay? This is this is no place significant. Now we find out later that that originally there was a city nearby by the name of Luz, but from the viewpoint of the reader, this place is really insignificant. And from the viewpoint of Jacob at this point, before he lays down to sleep, this place is is insignificant. Okay, it really has no significance at all. It's nowheresville. Okay. And and the and the point is is that is that the narrator is trying to 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 communicate to us that this place that is really nowhere then becomes significant because of what occurs there. Okay. And and he's trying to build our suspense, if you will, our anticipation of what's going to happen here. Because here he is, he's out in the middle of nowhere. So he's coming along and 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 he chooses why does he choose to sleep here? Because it got dark, okay? You see the point? There's no, there's no significance to this place. There's no reason why someone would choose to sleep here except you can't keep walking in the dark, okay? It's too dangerous and, and uh, there's no point in it. So, and you've got to sleep, you've got to rest, so it gets dark. So he just kind of walks himself out to the end of the day and it gets dark or it starts to get dark. And he goes, well, I might as well sleep here. And he's totally oblivious to any significance to this place. In fact, there is no significance to this place. And so he decides to lay down and sleep. And so he's kind of not real comfortable. So he goes and he finds a 
presumably kind of a flat stone and he gets it and he puts it in just the best place he can find to sleep and he lays down and he puts his head down on that stone. I assume he probably, you know, uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to sleep with your head on a stone, but I assume he probably put a, you know, a coat or something there between his head and the stone. I don't know. But so he lays down and he puts his head on the stone. And I just wonder, as he lie there on the ground, and the stars over his head, three days journey from home, Going, he doesn't know where to encounter what he doesn't know. I wonder what he thought about before he fell asleep. He had to be one lonely, frightened man. You know, there's, there's a time when somehow, by the grace of God, we just come to the end of our own scheming and our own plotting and our own planning. And we come... Uh, to that point, like uh, like Mike was pointing out, we come to that point where where we just realize this isn't getting us anywhere. <laughs> and he's lying there on the ground and he falls asleep. And then he has this dream. And this dream actually is really quite profound. It is the turning point in the nation of Israel. And it is so significant, in fact, that in John chapter 1, when Jesus is choosing His disciples, He says to them there at the end of chapter 1, He says, you think what you've seen so far is great. He says, the time will come when you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And what Jesus is saying there at the end of John chapter 1 is, I am the ultimate fulfillment of Jacob's dream. So, we don't want to just run right by this passage and not really stop and think about it because this really is a significant event. This is a significant encounter in the life of Jacob. Now, one of the commentators that I, that I like to use as I'm going through this study of Genesis is a guy by the name of Bruce Waltke. And, uh, and, and in his commentary on this passage, he talks about uh, he has kind of a little side thing that he talks about. He talks about two different kinds of time. He talks about chronos time and crisis time. Okay, and and he describes chronos time as just kind of being regular time. You know, just regularly scheduled time, just the passing of time. Okay, and we all just live our lives in chronos time. We all live our lives in just kind of. Every day, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year time. Okay. But then there is also in our life crisis times. These are the turning point times. These are the times which really are life altering in some respect. Okay. And what's been going on here in the life of Jacob is he's been he's just been kind of living through Kronos. <laughs> he's been just living through just everyday life, mundane life, day by day, week by week, year by year, and it's just life. Okay. But now he comes to the crisis time. Okay. And the crisis time really is the time that really can define our lives and really gives some significance and meaning to all that other time. And so what we have here in the life of Jacob is this crisis moment. 
that is life-altering in his whole world view. Because up to this point in the life of Jacob, he has he's pretty much just kind of lived life on his own, just doing his own thing. And sure, he knew about God. He'd heard about God and God was over there. God was the God of his father and the God of his mother. And, you know, but up till this, up till this time, Jacob has had no personal encounter with God. It's not his God. It's dad and mom's God. And, and this is just the way he's lived his life. And if he needed something, he just got it. By hook or by crook, whatever I had to do, I just get what I need. Okay? And that had worked pretty good for him up to this point in his life. And so this is his worldview. His worldview is you're just out there. You're on your own. You've got to grab for what you can grab and get what you can get. And if you have to step on a few people and you have to betray a few people, if you have to trick a few people to get it, do whatever you have to do to get what you need to get. And that's his worldview. But this is the crisis. He has a dream. And in this dream, God shows him another way to look at the world. He shows him a ladder. which is set upon the earth and its top is in heaven. And there are angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder. We've heard this story since we were kids, haven't we? You can probably remember sitting in Sunday school and seeing the pictures, you know, of Jacob asleep on the ground there and the, you know, and the, and the ladder and the angels going up and down, you know. I can remember seeing that. I had no clue what that meant. Yeah, it's kind of a cool picture, but I had no clue what that meant. Jacob didn't have a clue what it meant either. He had no clue that that, that was really the really the way the world was to be viewed. That that in reality, while God and heaven is up there and we're down here on the earth, there's actually a ladder in between and the angels are going up and down. And they are taking they are taking from the earth our needs and our requests and our pleas and they are taking them to heaven. And they are returning from heaven with God's answer. They are coming from heaven with God's provision and God's word and God's message and God's provision and God's care. That what Jacob discovers in this dream is that is that is not that we're over here and God's over there and we're just kind of pretty much on our own. But what he understands is that there is this ongoing, uninterrupted communion between heaven and earth, which ultimately is fulfilled, as I said, perfectly in Christ. But Jacob, of course, has had no awareness of this, but suddenly he, in his dream, he realizes that, yeah, heaven's there and I'm here, but there's this communication. There's this back and forth. There's this give and take. There's this God is interested in what I have to say and God is interested in my needs and God cares about the things that I care about. And not only that, but God is communicating. He's... He is providing. He's making provision. And He's speaking to me. And He has words for me. He has messages for me. 
The very idea of an angel is he's a messenger. Okay. And 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 uh, the New Testament talks about the angels being ministering spirits sent out to minister to the children of God. Okay. And so he's discovering this about he's discovering this about this world that he lives in, that it's it's not the way he thought it was. But there is this fellowship, this communion between heaven and earth, and he just totally missed all that. He had no clue. And how much of how much of for those of you who were maybe saved later in your life, uh, came to Christ later in your life, how much of your life did you live like that? Just uh, just unaware that yeah, you might have believed in God, believed He was up there or whatever, but just not really fully aware that, or, or really aware at all that, that, that God was involved and that, he, and that He was listening and that, and that there could be communion between you and God. That's a pretty startling discovery when you've lived most of your life the other way around. And that's the way Jacob lived his life. And so, and so he sees this ladder and he sees this angels, but what else does he see? Okay. He sees Yahweh. This is the Lord, the covenant God of Abraham. Now you notice God appears unannounced. Uninvited. He just shows up. Jacob's just off doing his thing and, and and just living life, just how he figures he's got to live life, and God shows up. And he introduces himself. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. Later in Scripture, he'll be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? But at this point, he's the God of Abraham and Isaac. You know, in, in Jacob's dream, that had to be pretty heavy because he'd heard Abraham talk about God. And he'd heard Dad talk about God. But that was Grandpa's God. And that was Dad's God. I'm my God. Now, he probably wouldn't have put it that way. But in reality, you know, we, as much as Abraham, I'm sure, wanted Jacob to know the reality of his God, and as much as Isaac wanted Jacob and Esau to know the reality of his God, only God could reveal His reality to Jacob. We can't, we can't make our kids experience God. You know, we can, we can set the context. We can, we can train them up in the ways of the Lord. We can, we can create the environment in the home that is conducive to our children loving and honoring God. But at some point, they have to encounter God themselves. At some point, they have to have that crisis time when they recognize it ain't working for me. I need God. And that's the point that finally Jacob gets to. Now, 
I should make it clear that I don't think that Jacob changes overnight here. I do think this is a life-altering change, but there's a great deal that has to happen in the life of Jacob over the next number of years. But this is what sets it in motion. is this encounter with God, and God comes to him, and then God starts giving him these promises. Okay? Now, this is this shyster. You know? This is this deceiving, heel-grabbing, lying. Remember when he went into his dad? To get the blessing. Remember how those lies just flowed off of his lip one after another and his dad would say something and he just, he was so witty with his lies. He could just, in a moment, he could come back with an answer and he's just, he just lying right and left. This is who now is lying there out there in the middle of nowhere with his head on a rock and God is speaking to him in a dream and saying, I'm going to give you all this land you're lying on. And I'm going to give you descendants like the dust of the earth. And you're going to spread out from the west to the east and from the north to the south. And I hear that and I go, oh, that reminds me of something. That's exactly what God said to Abraham. Remember in one of those many times that God addresses Abraham and, 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 and expresses the covenant promise to Abraham, which he does a number of times as we saw. I don't know how many times we've seen this promise already in Genesis. I think if, if, if anything, one thing we should be sure of, as many times as God says this promise, multiple times to Abraham, multiple times to Isaac, and eventually multiple times to Jacob, it should, it should get through our mind that God's really serious about this covenant promise thing and he really does plan to do it and fulfill it completely. I don't know how you can read that stuff and not take it literally. God is obviously very serious about it. But at any rate, where was I? Uh, so, so God is making this promise to, to Jacob that he made to Abraham of, of spreading out from the north to the south and the east to the west. And, and you remember with Abraham, he said... I want you to walk all over this land. I will walk all over it. Abraham, just go walk. Go take a hike. You know, walk all over this land. I'm going to give this land to you from west to east and north to south. That's exactly the way the Lord said it to Abraham. And now he's saying it to Abraham's grandson, to Jacob, in this dream. And then he says, and in your descendants, he says, in you and your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And there's that promise again of the blessing. There's that promise again that Jacob and his descendants will be the instrumentality of redemption to the nations. And, and so the Lord's just unloading all these promises on him. And then he gets to the end and he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to keep you and I am going to bring you back to this land. Now, if you're Jacob lying there on the ground in his state of mind, that's got to be pretty good news. Yeah, I may survive this after all. And I may not only survive it, I may actually end up back here. And then God says, because all these other things are going to happen, he says, because he says, I am not going to leave you until I have done everything I have promised. 
Now, we don't get a lot of insight into Jacob's relationship with God over the next 20 years when he's in Haran. But I do have to wonder how many times over the next 20 years that last promise of God was the only thing Jacob had to hold on to. Because the next 20 years are going to be rough. And they're going to start out rough. He's going to end up tricked right out of the barrel and obligated for 14 years of hard labor. <laughs> and it doesn't end there. And then he has wives that are bickering and fighting. And, and you know, just his life is just full of so much turmoil and trouble. And the next 20 years are so hard. And he's never hearing back from mom. Mom said she'd send and get me when Esau finally forgot about this thing. And he's not hearing from mom. This 20 years had to be hard. And there may have been times when he was tempted to think, well, yeah, God was with me and I remember the dream. And I did get a good wife here in Rachel, you know, and I am having some kids, but that was a long time ago. And it's been five years. It's been ten years. It's been 15 years and 16 years and 17 years and 18 years. Is God still with me? See, he doesn't hear from God again for 20 years that we know of. And so there's that. Is, is, God, is God still with me? And then, and then he could go back and he could remember what God said in the dream when he said, and I will be with you and I will keep you because I will not leave you until I have done everything I have promised. And part of the promise is I'm going to bring you back to this land. And then Jacob wakes up. And he goes, man, am I clueless. How often times have we been clueless like Jacob? He says, God was in this place. The Lord was in this place. And I did not know it. See, all the way in the beginning of the narrative, it's that place, this place, that place, that place, that place. The narrator didn't tell us God was there. And the reason he didn't is because he wanted us to feel the way Jacob felt. When he went, oh man, I thought I was out here in the middle of nowhere and this is not the middle of nowhere. This is the very house of God. This is the gate to heaven. Now, you know, we struggle with that living as we do in the dispensation that we live in because we always think about the omnipresence of God, right? <laughs> we think about how He's everywhere. And as believers now, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we just get very accustomed to thinking about wherever we go, God's with us and all that sort of thing. Well, that, you know, they didn't think in those terms back then. God certainly was omnipresent. But they didn't think in those terms. And so, to Jacob, who has lived his whole life thinking God was off somewhere else, has come to the startling realization that his worldview has been askewed. It's been, it's been distorted. And now he realizes that in this place, and this really is a special place, God is here. 
And I had no clue. I was living my life for myself and I was living my life independent of God and I was living my life indifferent to God and, and, and just really not paying any attention to God. And I had no clue when I laid down here last night that God was here. Not just any God, but Daddy's God and Grandpa's God. And it says he was afraid. It says, how awesome is this place? This is the very house of God. This is the gate of heaven. We, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, we use that word awesome nowadays. We just throw it around, don't we? I, you know, I use it about everything. I use it about a good piece of pie, you know. I, I use it about everything. And, you know, maybe I shouldn't. If for no other reason than to retain its significance when it's used in Scripture. Because when it's used in Scripture, it's talking about, man, I'm scared. This is way over my head, folks. This is bigger than I am. And I'm, I am unholy sinner in desperate need. And I have encountered a holy God. And I'm scared. And I'm trembling in my shoes. Because this is no ordinary place. This is the very house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This is where God talks to men and man talks to God. This is a pretty awesome place. And so this stone, this rock that he had just randomly picked the night before because it just looked like something that would work you know, to give him something to prop his head up on. He takes that and he sets it up on its end and he makes a pillar out of it. He makes a monument out of it. It's not something to worship. It's something to remember. Okay. So he sets it up and he pours oil on the top. The oil, the pouring of the oil represents the sanctifying it. He sets it apart. He makes this stone special. And then he calls the place Beth-El, the house of God. Beth-House-El-God, Beth-El, the house of God. And so this place that we've been hearing, this place, that place, this place, that place, all the way through, now is suddenly Beth-El, the house of God. And once again, we are reminded of something we've talked about several times as we've gone through Genesis. We talked about it clear back beginning at the Garden of Eden about the importance of place. You see, as we've talked about before, God is outside of space. And God is outside of time. Space and time are part of the creation. They are... They are distinct from God. Now, I know you can't understand that and I can't understand it because you and I exist in space and we exist in time. And that's the only existence we know. And so it's very hard for us to comprehend that there's some place outside of space <laughs> or that space has limitations to it. And beyond that is God. And it's also very difficult for us to comprehend. It's even more difficult for us to comprehend that God is outside of time, that there is no yesterday and today and tomorrow for God. Okay? 
that he's outside of time. So that's very hard for us to comprehend. But when God created us, he created us as finite, finite material beings. Okay, And he did that for a reason. I don't know his reason, but it's clear that God did it because he wanted to. So he created us as finite material beings. And what that means is that we are constrained by time and we are constrained by space. We are not omnipresent. You're here. You are nowhere else. Now, your mind may be somewhere else, but you are here. Okay? And here's what's important to you right now. And that's the way God made you. God made you so that where you are now would be important to you. And then God has also placed you in a particular time. Paul talks about all this in Acts chapter 17, how he, he placed us uh, the boundaries and the times of our habitations. Okay? That God placed us in certain times and he placed us in certain places in order that we might seek him. So that's, you know, that's, God has done that. And the point I'm trying to make is when we go through Scripture, as we read the scriptural story, it becomes clear that there are certain times in history that God wants us to remember, right? I mean, that's the whole point of our study in Genesis, is that there are certain things that happened in time that he doesn't want us to forget. That is why, on a regular basis, we go into the sanctuary and we take the bread and we take the cup and we remember the Lord's death until he comes. There are certain times that we need to remember, right? Well, in the same way that there are certain times that we need to remember, there are certain places that are also important to us that we need to remember. And we see that through Scripture, that, that there were places that God said, okay, this place is important. Before we started our study in Genesis, we did a study of Sinai. Remember the encounter at Sinai? Okay, that place is an important place. And God never wanted Israel, and I don't even think he wants us to forget Sinai. That's an important place. Now, it's wrong when we worship those places, but they are to serve to us as a reminder of our relationship with God and our experience with God of those crisis moments, if you will, when we encounter God. And we have those all the way through redemptive history, certain places that are important. The temple in Jerusalem. Golgotha. I will never forget, back in 1978, shortly before Teresa was born, standing outside the north gate of Jerusalem and looking across the street at this Arabic bus station and above the bus station is this cliff or this escarpment. goes up another 20 or 30 feet above the roof of this bus station. When I say bus station, you know, where they parked a bunch of their city buses. There's this escarpment. And you look at this escarpment and you can see it just as clear as a day. Two eyes and a nose. The place of the skull. And a little later, I had the opportunity to walk around back behind, go down another side street and go in the gate to a garden. And there was a garden there. It had been there for 2,000 years. Large garden. 
and down just a short distance from that bus station up over that escarpment and down a little hill probably not 100, 150 yards away is an empty tomb. There really is a place like that, folks. I've seen it. I've seen it with my eyes. It's where my sins were paid for. Places are important in our life. And Jacob says, I'm not going to forget this place. Now, he doesn't say that like, well, I won't forget this place. He's saying like, I'm going to make sure I don't forget this place. And so he sets his stone up on, a, up on its end and makes it a pillar and he makes it a memorial. So that if he ever gets back here, he can come back to this place. And then it says that he made a vow to God. And when you read it, it kind of looks like he's negotiating with God here, right? Okay. Because it says, now, if God does this and this and this and this, then I will do this and this and this, and he will be my God. And so it looks like that what Jacob is saying is, okay, if you'll do these things, God, then I'll come back, and when I get back, and if you've done all this, then you'll be my God. Okay. But this is not a covenant. It doesn't call it a covenant. It calls it what? A vow. And there's a difference between a vow and a covenant. Now, it does have some characteristics of a covenant, as we'll see in a moment here. But it's a vow. And, and vows are... Uh, vows, when they are, when they are realistic and when they are, when they are well thought out, and when they are motivated from righteous purposes, they're spoken of positively in Scripture. So we have numerous occasions in Scripture where we encounter, particularly in the Old Testament, and even occasionally in the New Testament, where we encounter vows. And uh, a classic example is the story of Hannah. Remember Hannah, the mother of Samuel? She's desperate. She doesn't have a child. She's barren. And she's She's distressed by this and she's prayed many times. And finally she comes to God and she says, God, if you'll just give me a child, I'll give him back to you. She just wants that satisfaction of giving birth to us to a child. And she makes a vow. Now, it's not like she's negotiating with God. It's not like she's she's trying to manipulate God. It's that in her utter dependence and her reverence for the majesty of God, she says, she says, God, I'll gladly give him to you if you'll just give him to me. And she makes this vow. And, and vows are also an important part of the mosaic, the whole mosaic uh, law. And there were provisions made for the votive offerings. A votive offering is an offering made in association with a vow. We see Paul make a votive offering. When he comes back to Jerusalem, he makes a vow. He cuts his hair. He makes an offering. He makes a votive offering. Okay. And throughout the Psalms, over and over again, we see the psalmist talking about vows that we've made. Now, what we need to understand about vows is that vows are completely volitional. 
You don't have to make one. You only make it if you wish to make it. But once you've made it, it is irrevocably obligatory. You've got to do it. And the Lord says it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Okay? So, it is volitional. You don't have to vow. But, so what we discover about vows in Scripture is that they're really an expression of a heart that is completely dependent upon God. And it's coming to Him out of a sense of worship and desperation. And is offering what it can to God as an expression to Him of gratitude and thankfulness if He will simply do this thing that I've asked Him to do. It's not, it's not negotiation. It's not a contract like we think of today where, you know, you pay me so much money and I'll build your house or you pay me so much money and I'll give you this car type of thing. It's not that at all. But it's this worshipful, reverent gratitude. And so when Jacob says here to the Lord, he says, if you'll go with me and if you'll give me food to eat and clothes to wear, And if you will bring me back to my father's house in safety, that word there actually is peace, in peace. Then, he says, you will be my God and this stone will be your house. And and of all that you give me, I will give to you a tenth. And so it's it's more like what he's saying is, you know, we use we use the word if sometimes in the in the sense of since. Okay. So sometimes when you say, well, if, if you, you know, if somebody says they'll do something, we'll say, well, if you do that, then I'll do this. Yeah. And it's not like we're doubting that they're going to do it. It's rather that, well, since you've agreed to do this, this is what I'm going to do. And what Jacob is doing here is he's expressing his gratitude to God for his promise. He's, he's really saying, well, God, since you're going to do this for me, then you will be my God. And this will be your house. I'm going to make sure that this is a place where you are worshipped, where this stone is. And of everything you give to me, I will give to you a tenth. Why? Because, here's where, the, here's where that idea of covenant comes in, because you're going to be my suzerain. I'm your vassal. You're my suzerain. I'm going to pay tribute to you because you're my God now. And so just like Abraham paid tribute to his suzerain Lord, through Melchizedek, now Jacob says, I will pay a tribute, a 10% tribute. I will pay a tithe to my suzerain God. And so Jacob is, is saying to God, since you're going to do all these things, now you're my God. Now, notice there are several things that Jacob is expecting from God here. And one is that God will be with him. And the second thing is that God's going to provide for his material needs, his food and garments. And the third is that God is going to bring him back to his family in peace. What's he thinking about there? He's thinking about Esau, isn't he? Thinking about Esau. How 
What could ever possibly happen that could reconcile Jacob and Esau? When we think about what he did to Esau, how could they ever be at peace? Only God could bring him back to his family in peace. There's no other, there's nothing else that could ever reconcile these two brothers except the intervention of a providential sovereign God. And in fact, we will see eventually they embrace one another in tears. And don't ever let that escape your mind that that is a sovereign work of a gracious God that those two brothers are ever reconciled. When we get to that part of the story, we'll talk more about that and how that happened. And I don't think it happened in Esau's heart until the night before he met Jacob. And we'll talk about that when we get there. Okay. So what we have here in this story is this crisis moment in the life of Jacob. But the crisis doesn't make the man. The chronos makes the man. This is, just a, this is just a turning point. But it is only a turning point if over the next 20 years, Jacob really allows these things to become part of the warp and woof of his character. And that's what the next 20 years are about. It's one thing to say, you're going to be my God and I'm going to serve you and I'm going to pay tithe. But it's another thing to live through what Jacob lives through for the next 20 years. And to come out on the other side and go back to Bethel and say, I promised it and I'm going to keep it. But it is a turning point. Because what happens here at Bethel is that a fugitive becomes a pilgrim. And a grasper becomes a giver. His life is utterly transformed because he has encountered the living God. Okay? Well, next week, he gets to Haran and he meets Rachel. Okay?